0: This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Susanna Freymark, editor of northern New South Wales community newspaper IndyNR.com joined me to talk about the floods crisis in the Northern Rivers region of New South Wales. Susanna tells us stories of helicopter and boat rescues by residents, the inadequate government response at the height of the disaster, and what life is like now for flood-affected communities. Then, best-selling author Johan Hari joined me to discuss in-depth his new book, Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention. Johan investigates the attention crisis and asks, Why have we lost our ability to focus? What are the causes? And more importantly, how do we get it back? Then, finally, historians Professor Joy Demusi from Australian Catholic University and Professor Frank Bongiorno from the Australian National University joined me to talk about the late Australian historian Stuart McIntyre. We talk about Stuart's life and legacy as well as his masterful final book, a second volume of the history of the Communist Party of Australia called The Party, the Communist Party of Australia from heyday to reckoning. Now, I'm very, very pleased to welcome onto the program Susanna Freymark, who is editor of a New South Wales community newspaper called indienna.com. And Susanna is joining me uh, from her local community in the Northern Rivers area um, of New South Wales. And she has uh, been doing some really wonderful reporting from her local community on the floods that have affected not only New South Wales, of course, which has been Susanna's focus, but uh, Queensland as well. We know that the death toll from these floods across both states uh, is 22 people, um, which is really, really uh, terrible news. And, um, of course, there's a lot more devastation that has occurred as well in terms of um, animals, livestock, homes, possessions. Um, But, of course, human life is... Uh, just absolutely terrible and shocking um, in terms of the loss of it and no doubt is um, very much traumatising for the communities who are dealing with that at the moment. So I welcome Susanna onto the program to talk about uh, this issue as well as the government response to it. Hi there, Susanna.
1: Hi, Amy. How are you doing?
0: I'm not too bad. I, I'm not sure how to ask you how you are because, um, I mean, it must be a really difficult time not only for you but for everyone else who you're speaking with at the moment.
1: It is heartbreaking. I have never covered a disaster of this scale and the stories I hear when I go to the small att- the villages particularly are heartbreaking, absolutely devastating. Whole towns like Woodburn, Korakai, uh, Broadwater have just been wiped out
2: Mm.
0: And in terms of the areas that your reporting has focused on, um, for those of us here in Victoria who some, of course, will be very familiar with the area, but for those who aren't, could you just share with us um, the types of areas that you've been um, reporting on and, and the people that you've been speaking with in terms of the kind of catchment that it involves?
1: Well, I cover Richmond Valley LGA and Kyogre LGA, and both of those LGAs border Lismore, so Lismore would be the main bigger town, big city, that residents here go go to. But I have been focused on a lot of the smaller places because I felt it was really important to tell their stories. It's The Richmond Valley is cattle country, um, farmers, Cuyahoga has has got dairy, um, tourism because of the rainforest. So they're very mixed towns, but, they're you know, they're country folk who are getting on with life after the 2019 bushfires and then, of course, COVID lockdowns hit here very hard and now the floods. So they are exhausted, absolutely exhausted, and they're keeping on going, and I don't know how they keep going. I As soon as I could, I went out to the smaller villages as soon as the floodwaters receded, and I just had never seen such devastation. The smell, the floodwaters was, in some places were still just sitting there and people were cleaning up their houses and many of them had absolutely nothing left. There were just big mountains of rubbish outside each house and rows and rows of this in street after street. And it's, when I first, the first town I went to, I it was hard, it was Korokai. It was really difficult to even take pictures because your eyes and your senses had to get used to what you were seeing, because it was unbelievable.
0: Mm. Yeah, a lot of people have described it as like a war zone. And and the fact that it's even kind of wiped out massive parts of the landscape, you've seen things like landslides and, you know, huge amounts of the natural environment affected just as much as the built environment. Um, I also wanted to ask about some of the you know videos that we've seen and you shared some on your Twitter feed and uh, Instagram uh, around some of the cattle that got caught up in this, uh, which were essentially almost swimming through floodwaters um, and their owners um, trying to coax them across to dry land, the only kind of tiny island of dry land that was there in one of those videos. Uh, It was kind of shocking to watch, I think, for many people to see, you know, that this is causing so much distress and that there would have been so many animals that didn't make it to dry land. So could you share with us in terms of the farmers and their experience and their perspective dealing with uh, the kind of shock and trauma of uh, livestock loss and also um, trying to to rescue them essentially?
1: Well, the animal stories were, you know, when there's a disaster like this, Things like the animal stories really touch people, and yes, that was um, Elaine Trustum, Elaine and Darcy Trustum sent me that video. They were in Tadham, and Tadham is on a floodplain, and usually the water goes there but doesn't rise so much. And they their house was on a, a very small mound, which was very fortunate because the water only lapped at the edges of the house. But they had 60 head of cattle, and of course that the whole all the paddocks were just flooded, and Because their cattle are so tame, like Elaine told me, that Darcy would go out every morning when he goes to see them and he goes, come on, come on, and they're very used to responding to him. So in the video when the the cattle was trying to swim to safety and the only bit of dry land was... The, the, the tiny bit of garden around Elaine's house, which was a very beautiful garden with roses. She was very proud of it, which of course was destroyed when sixty cattle had to spend a few days around in the garden. Mm. And so they were calling the cattle and her daughter was there and her daughter and partner had to and, and, and the older kids had to jump in the water and swim with the cattle. And you can hear in the video them going, come on, come on and you can see the cattle responding, trying to get to them. And she feels that the reason they saved their cattle was because they were so tame and responded to them. So they are okay and eventually got hay, etc. But that video um, seemed to really distress a lot of people when they saw it. Fortunately, the cattle were okay. I've had some stories about horses. I've had stories that I couldn't publish because I felt they would be too distressing to the people going through it. So a lot of animals did die. A lot was saved. There's been wonderful stories of people being reunited with their dogs because in a lot of places people were on the roofs of their houses waiting for help, waiting for a boat to come. And in places like Woodburn, it was locals from Evans Head and other areas that got in their tinnies and went and saved people. So sometimes they couldn't take their dog and found it a few days later. So they were, the animal stories were particularly heartbreaking. And, of course, with the livestock Um, not only do the farmers care about them, they are also worth a lot of money. So it was their livelihood as well. So that video, yes, when it went on Twitter, I didn't expect... I think at the beginning there wasn't a lot of media coverage and on Sunday night it was very clear, and that was February 28, that things were just really awful because Facebook was just... A wash with messages saying, I'm on the roof, I need help. The water's coming up, we're gonna die if we don't get help. So these were coming across Facebook. I was getting messages, there was nothing I could do except say, call the SES and Triple Zero. Both those numbers were overloaded. And I'm surprised that there weren't more deaths actually, because people, you know, people feared for their lives, and it was uh, I don't know how many locals I'm trying to track who I can, who got in boats and went and saved people and took them to safety.
0: Yeah, it's so true. And I know that, you know, we've been talking about the this in the, the wash up and, Like we've been hearing from mayors and deputy mayors around the situation, what the response was from uh, the SES, which is obviously a volunteer organisation, but also, as you say, Triple Zero, the Australian Defence Force um, and as people have said, anecdotally, they weren't able to get through to police, to the SES, um, that there were just so many, so few boats uh, and so few, in terms of the SES, um, so few volunteers, uh, and that, you know, they were overwhelmed by the scale of the number of call-outs and that there was, I guess, this kind of shock that there really was no-one else to fill the gap, um, that it was locals who then stepped up with their own boats, uh... private companies bringing in helicopters. So I wonder if you could share with us locally um, some of the rescue efforts from the community, the actual uh, residents there who stepped up uh, in place of any other support that, that kind of clearly was lacking because it wasn't expected to be so severe and obviously for a number of other reasons.
1: Yes, and I just want to point out people in this whole area are used to floods. Mm. They prepare for it, they sandbag they do all the things that need to be done. They put their stuff up high, so they did all the right things, but no one was prepared for it being two meters above any other record. so that two meters was everything so people who put did the right thing, it wasn't enough in this instance. Um, I had a a lovely story from a man called Robert May in Woodburn. He believes he would have died. He was waiting for a boat. None was coming. And he said two young fellas turned up in a tinny and saved him from his Woodburn home. He's now um, trying to track them so he can thank them. And a lot of people are wanting to do that. I know Rotor Wing helicopters in Lismore, they lost their home, half their business, but they were making um, food drops and helping rescue people in those first few days, like Sunday night and Monday. They got funding. People were crowdfunding for helicopters um, by private donation. They got a sizeable donation from Chris Hemsworth, who lives near Byron Bay. So all this, people were doing madly doing all of this trying to organise it as best they could to save people. So you had private helicopters, you had private boats. I know lots of people from Evans Head headed out to Riley's Hill because it was just, you know, the, the water was up to the roofs of the houses, and they just went out there and saved people. The funny thing is so many people that I've asked, you know, can I do a story on you helping that person, they don't want to be heroes. They just see themselves as helping when help was needed. They don't, they're so humble about what they have done and there's lots of them. Um, I've only been able to get hold of a few of them because I'd like to, uh, to highlight that story because I think Australians, saving other Australians in their tinnies is a really amazing story. Mm. And, um, yeah, they just they got out there and they, they got on with it and just helped people. I know there were people in Korakai who were on their roofs and, stranded for four days before they got help you know they've told me how they were you know divvying divvying up little sachets of porridge so they had something to eat and there was just no help and of course now that the floodwaters have mostly receded people are angry they're angry that help wasn't there when they needed it despite also being very grateful for the local support.
0: Yeah the anger is very understandable I know that people were looking at those Facebook call-outs, looking at the Twitter call-outs, and were in a lot of distress, seeing that they couldn't do anything um, because they weren't there and couldn't go in to help. And it's so great to hear that there were all of these um, locals who stepped up and truly are heroes. Um, But Obviously, understandable that they you know feel that they would have done that in this situation anyway, and and it's something that you would do as a human being is to um to save the life of another person. So I can understand where they're coming from. But one thing I'd love to hear from you about is this um, sense of anger and frustration about the government response because we have heard the New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet at least acknowledge that the rescue response was inadequate. We've also seen uh, Scott Morrison, the prime minister eventually emerge from his COVID isolation to visit Lismore, for example, last Wednesday and uh, talk to locals and talk to local media and almost, um, Suggest that it would be unreasonable to expect the ADF to drop things at a moment's notice and turn up to rescue people. And we do know that they were there doing something, um, clearly not to the extent that was necessary. Uh, But then we did hear the Prime Minister say that, oh, of course, um, you know, it's common to have a sense of abandonment, to feel a sense of abandonment. That is a common thing um, in a disaster. I mean, this is something which seems a very condescending, but also completely removed from reality when it's not about feeling a sense of abandonment. Clearly there was an abandonment.
1: I think there definitely was and I think Scott Morrison when he finally did come to Lismore nine days after the floods he didn't read the room. I mean he had an opportunity because people are so traumatised and obviously very sensitive, very fragile, He, he had an opportunity to say something that would help them and what he did when he came there was he picked certain LGAs like Clarence Valley, Richmond Valley and Lismore, saying that those people would get triple the amount, which was $3,000 instead of 1,000. But then people in Byron, in Kyoga, which I also cover, he said they wouldn't. And I just thought that was a slap in the face for those people who had lost homes or lost property and who were hurting. I just don't think you can come into a situation like that and say, you're getting money you're getting money oh, you're not because of where you live I think the, the the government grants or any money given should be to anyone who is impacted by the floods not based on which LGA they live in so I thought that was I was I was furious personally was furious about that I, I haven't been affected by the floods I live up high but I just thought those people who had missed out how up that would be way more upsetting because of what they've been through. Um, Dominic Peritette was in many of the towns. He went to Woodburn, Korokai and the others. He did... The fact that he did apologise... The thing about that is when when he said that, people... It it meant a lot to people that he actually acknowledged that. And I know he went and did, you know, the walkabout in many of the towns and met people. The Governor-General came in very quietly without any press announcement and was seeing shopkeepers in Woodburn. I think... The Prime Minister failed to read the room. I think the government failed in their response to this disaster. It is not okay to say what he said to people who have been through this. And I think that, you know, the debrief, if you like, on it needs, you know, we need a national emergency response team that includes the army, includes the right equipment that can respond to any disaster in Australia. you know, irregardless of whether it's a Labor seat or any other political party, it should be responding to Australians who need help. And I think in terms of these floods, they have failed on that.
0: Yeah. And it is really shocking when you think about the billions of dollars that were spent on JobKeeper uh, and in many cases with companies that didn't need it. And then um, the prime minister is uh, being tight, really, when he's withholding $2,000 worth of payments from some LGAs that have been affected by floods. It's kind of galling. I, I can understand why people would be so Furious, really. Um, But that's only going to be a three week payment. Then we've got to think about future support. Uh, And I know that it's really been tough for people because some could access or will be able to access insurance um, and their insurance payout, but then others will not be because they couldn't get insurance. Uh, they couldn't afford it, or they wouldn't um, be able to receive insurance for their area because the companies didn't want to to give it out to provide it. So I wonder when we're looking at um, the situation for people on the ground, both their livelihoods in terms of their jobs, but also their homes and their possessions, how are people grappling with that? No doubt many would be homeless um, or in insecure housing. So I wonder what does it look like what does the picture look like for people on the ground and what are their concerns at the moment financially
1: well most people I've spoken to don't have insurance it was just if they could get it it was just way too high so they most of them don't have insurance it's it'd been interesting watching it on the ground because initially it was I need to be safe I need to be rescued I need something I need somewhere dry to get to then it was um, loads of donations came in for water and food then that changed to clothes and other things that people would need like bedding, cleaning equipment. And I know that all of the evacuation centres in my areas are chockers with donations. They don't want any more. They've got, they've got all of that. Like there's halls full of stuff, like a massive department store. The thing they're saying they need now, it was interesting, like they need fridges and washing machines because that's what you're seeing along the streets that are wrecked. Um, One, uh, the flower farm, Field and Flower in Woodburn, when I said, look, I'm coming through because everywhere I go, I fill up my car with something because I feel if I'm going out to these areas, I need to take whatever is needed. And I asked them what they needed and they said, we just want a pair of dry socks. Um, The snake catcher in um, Terry Collins in Corakai I said, look, I'm coming out, Terry, to do a story because he's busy catching snakes and he's lost everything. I said, you know, what do you need me to bring? He said, I need fuel and I need deodorant. So it's been, which was quite funny, but it's like, it's been interesting what people need. Now they need money. They need money so they can find somewhere to live, which is going to be really hard. Although um, 120 motorhomes are coming up to the area. I know Casino has 40. But the area was already really stretched for housing and now you've got a whole lot of homeless people. Um, Today I'm actually going to do a story to find out how many homes in each of these villages have been lost and I know it's going to be very high. People want want to get back in their homes and of course the RFS, which is another great part of this story, RFS units all over this area and from Sydney across the state have turned up to hose out houses. And again, they're all volunteers. So they're in the area, hosing businesses, hosing houses. So at least the inside of the house is is clean. People just want to get back in their homes because um, their lives are so shattered. Some are still sleeping um, either at evacuation centers or with friends and some like Terry, the snake catcher can't even get into his house when I was there three days ago, it still had floodwaters around it. He said, it's gone, you know, there's no way he can rebuild so he's staying at a friend's and he's still getting calls. He, he he said he lost count of how many calls he'd had that day to go and catch brown snakes because, of course, they can't swim and are looking for any piece of dry land, which is usually a house. So these... And he's just getting on with it. It's It's quite incredible. And, you know, he said he can't think about what he's lost because it's too heartbreaking. He's just helping people catch snakes and he needs fuel to do that. The nice thing about the communities up here, you know, if I put that on Facebook... People respond, they say, oh, where can I take it? What fuel does he need? And and people are responding. And um, yeah, it's just, it's changed what they need. Now they need government assistance to help rebuild. The army is everywhere at the moment, which is fantastic. And I didn't like when the government, when Peter Dutton and Scott Morrison were saying that people shouldn't criticise the army. No-one has criticised the army. Everyone is really happy to see them here. And they are doing a great job because they come in, you know, 20 of them come in to lift out a piano or to clean stuff up. So everyone's really happy to see them and they've been very warmly welcomed. What people are critical of is how long it took to get them here.
3: Yeah. And,
1: And that's a big difference. And I don't like these furfies. I don't like when it's you know, put onto the states or, you know, acknowledge what didn't work because this is going to happen again. It's going to happen here and it's going to happen in other areas and we have to learn how to deal with it better and faster. We can't have people thinking they're going to die on their roof with floodwaters around them and a very small SES trying to deal with it and one of the problems for the local SES units is, of course, lots of them were flooded in. So it was a really difficult... um, situation, I think the whole thing could have been been handled way better.
0: Mm. It's true that the government, the federal government, seems to have a habit of deflecting criticism in that particular manner, even when um, Scott Morrison was talking about Emmanuel Macron and saying that um, Emmanuel Macron was, uh, you know, criticising Australians. Well, no, he wasn't. He was criticising the Prime Minister, and it's, um, you know, similarly... In this situation, people were not criticising the ADF, they were criticising the leadership of the federal
1: government. Yes, they were. And uh, the army, like I know, there's a 1,000 troops in Casino going out to all sorts of areas and they've set up, they got here, they set up a Facebook page and any residents can go on that page or phone them and say, I need this, and they will send a team out. So now they're here, I think people, like I've been taking photos of them because I know people feel very (laughs) reassured that help is here. Mm. One of the problems, of course, say, like in Korokai, we couldn't get there for about five days because the floodwaters were too high. You know, when I got there, there were people on boats with hay. There were jet skis with hay dropping it off. There were helicopters. It's the first time I've ever seen helicopters dangling bales of hay, taking, you know, feed to all the livestock in the more remote areas. But if it wasn't for the private helicopters and those people in their tinnies... I mean, the scale of this disaster, I I don't even want to think about what would have happened if those people hadn't stepped up.
0: Yeah, it is very concerning. And so many people have been reflecting on that. Um, The fact that it took so long for the scale of help needed to actually arrive and also um, that it took so long even for the federal government to unilaterally declare a national emergency, which they did not need the states to um, respond to, to give approval for. Um, And I guess it was really disappointing to see that it coincided with the Prime Minister's exit from isolation from uh, COVID and people, you know, drawing those links. And since interviewing ministers, asking them why it took so long to declare a national emergency, I mean, looking forward and thinking about this idea that clearly this probably is, isn't is really a five, one, one in 500-year event, um, this is probably going to happen within the next decade again potentially, what are uh, some of the things that people locally are thinking about and thinking that the government needs to be considering, apart from um, something you've just mentioned earlier about the national emergency response, but, you know, what are your... What are the locals' thoughts, given that you are residing in kind of flood-prone areas, uh, what are some of the things that should be proactively being done to prevent something, you know, worse from happening in the future?
1: Well, in terms of um, communicating, I know the Prime Minister was in isolation, could have done a video call. That could have gone out across all media outlets the emergency minister could have come up there's a whole lot of ways they could have communicated much sooner because it doesn't matter who is in power they are still the leader of the country and when people are in crisis they need to hear from their leaders and i have to say the mayors and um, the local MPs have been out on the ground every single day talking to people and it's that thing of When you're in a crisis like that, you will turn to people in authority. And if you have that authority, do not take that lightly. So there's a whole lot of things that the Prime Minister could have done to have communicated with people and also could have been a lot more generous in that communication. So that's the first thing. You can't, you know, don't get into politics and a whole lot of other stuff when people are hurting like this. It's um, it's like rubbing salt in the wound. And um, like I said, I wasn't personally affected by the floods with my home, but Uh, It just just upset me so much that that was the message that was given to people. Um, So that's the first thing is, you know, communicate like a leader. You know, make sure you talk to people because at that point in time they really need to hear from you. Um, The other thing is making sure payments go to anyone who's affected. Do not not have boundaries because the flood doesn't care about LGA boundaries. Um, It went wherever it was going to go and... Anyone who's affected should have a right to apply for funds. I think in terms of helping people rebuild, they need a lot more than $3,000. That will buy them a new fridge or freezer and they need a lot more to get back on their feet. Otherwise, communities like Woodburn and Broadwater, which were just wiped out, I mean, every place was affected, they need a lot more help than just that. And I know the state government has announced a whole lot of different things, including um, up to 50,000 business Uh, flood recovery grants, Um, again, the thing I'm hearing from different um, businesses and not-for-profit organisations applying for those grants is they have to have invoices. They have to show a lot of paperwork. That's really difficult at this time. And I know the process is you can't have people ripping off the system, but people are exhausted. It's really hard to get a quote for needing to fix the electrics in your business or whatever you need to get back on your feet. It's really hard to get that because everybody's flat out at the moment. So I think they also need to look at how do we make the process quicker. And one of the things they could do is send out assessors, send them out here, let them go to those businesses and see for themselves so that the, biz- the onus isn't on the business owner to have to provide all this proof because they're exhausted. It's another layer of bureaucracy that they... Um, it's just it's just too much for them. So there's a whole lot about the process that in these times when it's in a crisis, make that easier for people. Don't make it harder. Don't make them have to do more paperwork when they're, you know, I'm, I did a story yesterday of three women were in the shop in Woodburn ripping up the floor with crowbars. Just they were determined to get it done and they, and they were laughing and, you know, just getting stuck in. But, I mean, that was a hard job. For them to do to then have to then they've got to go and apply for all these grants that are available it would be a lot easier if there was a service new south wales assessor that comes in and says okay what do you need okay because it's it's going to be obvious what the costs are just give them that money so they can rebuild because the town i know that sandra arts is the bakery owner in woodburn and she is desperate to get her bakery up and running so that people can come and have get a coffee, get a bun or a pie, because that will be a wonderful thing to be, for them to be to do again. And it's that, I mean, that's, she was just buzzing because she was so excited that she could get her bakery up and running again. And I know when she does, you know, that's going to be such a, a heartwarming thing for people to do is something as simple as going to buy, you know, a finger bun and a cup of coffee. So let's help them do that. Don't make it more difficult. So I don't know why it's so hard. I'm not a politician, but I don't understand why in a time like this, which we've had with fires, we've had, you know, all over Australia, we have these types of disasters. We need to respond differently to them. It's not about what the rules are or the politics. It's what do those people need? And if you just focus on that, what do those people who are traumatised need? It isn't that difficult (laughs) to come up with um, solutions, I don't think.
0: No, no, absolutely not. Um, Just finally, Susanna, I know that, you know, you just said there, you know, there were women ripping up the floorboards. I know there's a lot of people looking at their walls peeling. Um, There's clearly a lot of people with their furniture that's gone mouldy and that kind of thing. So all their possessions are out on the street. Uh, So there's quite a lot of kind of hazard around in terms of people having to deal with the cleanup and uh, all the mess and, and mould and other types of hazards that exist around this, and then, of course, needing to access supplies to either fix their homes or start afresh. So, just looking at that, I know you said it, it is really difficult to get a tradesperson around, but are those... Is that also going to be an issue moving forward in terms of access to materials, access to tradespeople and um, the kind of future rebuilding process?
1: Well, it was already difficult getting supplies and things like... um, I was at the Kyogre Council meeting last night and they were talking about the roads. They've had to put their normal roads program on hold because they've had so many landslips, damaged bridges because of the floods. And it was already difficult getting supplies, particularly from China that was already causing problems, so this is going to make it worse because the, the tradespeople that are available are extremely busy, and supplies are already slowed because of COVID lockdowns around the world. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to take longer because of those issues. So I don't quite know how people are going to deal with that. Um, one thing I wanted to say too, one that I hadn't realised when. I've been into some homes that have been cleared out, you know, they've ripped up the floors, they've cleared everything out and it's sitting, it's an empty shell drying out. When you go inside those houses, even though they've been cleaned out, the floodwaters have gone, they are dripping. There's, they're just stagnant, wet walls, even though they've been cleaned. So I don't know even how long that takes for them to properly dry out and then get a, get assessed for mould and other hazards. I know in Lismore there were issues with um, people who were near a disused bitumen plant and all of that bitumen that was sitting there is hanging off the walls of their home so that it's black. So there's so many issues for people to deal with and we're going to need extra help for a long time. This is going to take years for people to recover from this. Yeah, gosh.
0: Thank you, you know, for sharing us with us so many stories and, and the details of what's happening on the ground there, Susanna. And um, for people, obviously, they can check out the indienr.com website to follow your reporting and um, also follow you on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, But also, you know, we mentioned that there's plenty of um, donations already in terms of clothing, for example. Um, But what, if people are wanting to provide any support or help, are there any ways that people can provide meaningful support um, from further away from places like Victoria?
1: Well, I think the main thing needed now is money. And I, because I focus very much on super local news, I like to support the local groups. So, for instance, Broadwater um, has a crowdfunder, if you type in Facebook, book, book, Broadwater or Corica, they have their own crowdfunders happening for those towns. And the reason I like those is the money goes directly to those people. It doesn't have to filter through a larger organisation. So there are plenty. One of my jobs today is to make a list of all of those. So on indianart.com, by the end of the day, I'll have a list of where people can donate so that it goes direct to locals. Right. Um, I also wanted to just give a shout-out that everywhere I go, there are people, volunteers from... All over the place, I, you know, just so many outside towns outside this area who have just turned up with gloves and shovels and brooms to help clean up. They're just, they're just, they're just turning up. So someone puts a call on Facebook and says, um, I'm at this address, I need help. People from all over are just going to that address and cleaning it up. So that has been incredible to see. And they don't want any acknowledgement. They're just there. They spend the day cleaning and then they go back home. And that that has been another... A really beautiful thing to see in this time of crisis.
0: Mm, absolutely. Thank you so much, Susanna, for your time today. And thank you for all the reporting that you're doing to provide support to your community, but also to illuminate the situation for all of us who want to uh, be better informed. So I really appreciate your time today.
1: Thank you very much, Amy. This is a
0: podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. And I am absolutely delighted to welcome back onto the show Johan Hari, who is an internationally best selling author. And I have had the absolute good pleasure and fortune of meeting him in person twice. And uh, funnily enough, we're now doing our chat over the internet, which is very <laughs> crazy. Um, Johan is the author of many books, including Chasing the Scream, which was our last chat. And it was just recently adapted into a Hollywood feature film, The United States vs. Billy Holiday. And we also did get a chance to catch up the first time, although it was actually his last book called Lost Connections, and it was looking at anxiety and depression. So I welcome Johan back onto the program to talk about his new book, Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention, which is out through Bloomsbury. Hey there, Johan.
4: Oh my God, Amy, I'm so happy to be with you. I feel like last time I saw you was in the before times. And, uh, you know, I cried the other day when I saw those clips of the Qantas flights landing and, you know, like Uh. internationals coming into Australia. I was like, oh my God, I could go to Australia. I was like properly, I was in Las Vegas at the time. And I was like, oh my God, I could just go. Literally now, to Australia. It well, felt please like please do. Oh my God, I'm so definitely, I'm coming back in about a year's time. I might squeeze uh. my time back before then. But uh, yeah, so I'm so thrilled to be with you, Amy. It's always a joy to talk to you.
0: Well, thank you for coming on to the program again. And every time we have spoken, we've had such a massive response to oh. hearing from you. And I know that it has made a huge difference to people, especially your book, Lost Connections. So I know that this book in particular is going to do the same because it's certainly done that mm-hmm. for me. Thank you for, for pursuing these topics, which they're so vital to being human. The things that you're looking at really do affect everyone. They are universal subjects and they're not just about technology, for example, with this conversation. It is about who we are as humans, what we're driven by and whether we're able to fulfill our drives and desires and be able to be who we truly want to be. So yeah, thank you for pursuing these things, which are very meaningful to us.
4: Oh, cheers, Amy. Thank you.
0: Now, Johan, there's so much to get into, but (laughs) I do want to start with the story that you pick up in the book, which I think is such a great way to get into this. And it was talking about your godson and what you were observing in him and also why it made you so frustrated because it seemed to be something that was actually deep down being reflected within yourself. So I wonder if you could share that story with us.
4: Yeah, when when my godson was nine, he developed this brief but freakishly intense obsession with Elvis Presley. I never understood how he even found out about Elvis, but it was particularly cute because he didn't know that Elvis had become a cheesy cliche. So I think he was probably the last person in the history of Western civilization to do a totally sincere impression of Elvis. And he used to get me to tell him the story of Elvis's life over and over again. And one night as I was tucking him in, I was telling it to him. And I mentioned Graceland where Elvis lived and he and he looked at me and he said, will you take me to Graceland one day? And I said, yeah, sure. The way, you know, like with nine year olds next week, he'll want to go to Goofy's house or whatever. And he, and he looked at me really intensely and he said, no, do you swear one day you'll take me to Graceland? And I said, I absolutely promise. And I didn't think of that again for 10 years until so many things had gone wrong. He, he dropped out of school when he was 15. And by the time he was 19, this this will sound like an exaggeration, it, it absolutely isn't, he spent literally almost all his waking hours alternating between his iPhone and his iPad, and his life was just this blur of WhatsApp, YouTube, porn, Snapchat. And it really was like he was kind of whirring at the speed of Snapchat, where nothing still or serious could touch him. And one day we were sitting on my sofa just right next to where I'm sitting now, And I'd been trying to get talking to him all day and just nothing was getting any traction. And to be totally honest with you, Amy, I wasn't that much better. I was staring at my own devices. And I suddenly remembered this moment all those years before. And I said to him, hey, let's go to Graceland. And he looked at me completely blankly. He's like, what are you talking about? He didn't even remember this Elvis phase he'd had. And I I reminded him and I said, no, literally, let's go all over the South. Let's break this numbing routine. Let's get out of here. But you got to agree one thing which is that if we go you'll leave your phone in the hotel during the day because there's no point going if you're just gonna stare at your phone all day and he thought about it really seriously and said yeah i would like to do that let's do it so i think it was literally two weeks later we took off from london Heathrow to new orleans where we started and two weeks after that we arrived in in graceland and when you get to the gates of graceland now there's no physical person to show you around this is even before covid what happens is they hand you an ipad and you put in some earbuds and the iPad shows you around. It says, go left, go right. It tells you about the room you're in. And every room you go in, there's a picture of that room on the iPad. So what happened, I noticed as we're walking around, is everyone just walks around Graceland staring at their iPad. And I'm finding this sort of slightly irritating. I'm a bit like, oh, we did travel quite a long way and no one seems to be looking at the place we'd come to. And we, we got to the jungle room, which was Elvis's favourite room in Graceland. And there there's a Canadian couple next to us. And the man turned to his wife and said, Honey, this is amazing. Look, if you swipe left, you can see the jungle room to the left. And if you swipe right, you can see the jungle room to the right. And I laughed out loud. I thought he was kidding. And I turned to look to them and they're just swiping back and forth. And I leaned over and I said, But hey, sir, there's um, there's an old-fashioned form of swiping you could do. It's It's called turning your head because look, we're actually in the jungle room. You don't have to look at a (laughs) digital representation of it. We're we're actually there. And they sort of looked at me like I was completely insane and backed away. And I turned to my godson to laugh about it. And he was standing in the corner staring at Snapchat because from the minute we landed, he couldn't stop. He just literally couldn't stop. And I, I went up to him. I did that thing that's never a good idea with teenagers. I tried to grab the phone out of his hand. And I said to him, I know you're afraid of missing out but this is guaranteeing that you'll miss out. You're not showing up at your own life. You're not present at the events of your own existence. This is no way to live. And he stormed off, I wandered around Memphis on my own that day. And I found him later that day in the Heartbreak Hotel where we were staying, just, it's just up the street. And he was sitting by the swimming pool, looking at his phone and I went up to him and I apologized. And he didn't look up from Snapchat, but he said to me, I know something's really wrong and I don't know what it is. And that's when I thought, okay, I need to figure out what's happening here because we had gone away to escape this attention crisis, this this inability to be present. But what we realised is, is there was nowhere to escape to because that problem was seemed to be everywhere. So I was like, okay, what 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 can we do now? And that was really the beginning of the journey for Stolen Focus.
0: Yeah, and it just does make you think that all of our experiences are being mediated through our phones in a way. Like you go to a concert and everyone's filming the concert Mm. looking through their phone instead of actually watching the concert. It actually also reminds me going to an art gallery. I had a similar experience where they Mm. would give you iPads and you would put earphones in and everyone's just walking around looking at artwork being guided Mm. by their iPad. And it's just, I don't know, it's very jarring, isn't it? To think Mm. that there was an old school way of doing it, which was just standing in front of a painting and taking it (laughs) in and thinking. (laughs) And as you you say, (laughs) letting your mind wander.
4: It's, well, it's so interesting to me because as I began to research this, I sort of realized, you know, I had been had this feeling for quite a long time that things that require deep focus that are so important to me, like reading a book, having proper deep conversations, were getting more and more like running up a down escalator. You know what I mean? I could still do them, but they were getting harder and harder. And I could see the, the evidence was pretty clear this was happening to a lot of people. For every one child who was diagnosed with serious attention problems, when I was seven years old, there's now 100 children who have that diagnosis. The typical office worker now focuses on only one task for only three minutes. And um, one small study found that a typical American college student only focuses on only one task for 65 seconds. So trying to figure out, okay, what what's, got, what's happened to us, but most importantly, how do how do we overcome this so i ended up going on this really big journey all over the world from melbourne to moscow to miami to montreal not not just to cities that begin with the letter m and i interviewed over 200 of the leading experts on focus and attention and i used my training in the social sciences at cambridge university to really dig deeply into the science of this and what i learned is there's scientific evidence for 12 factors that can make your attention better or make your attention worse. Some of those factors are in some aspects of our technology, but they actually go really widely from the food we eat to the hours we're forced to work to the sleep we don't get. There's a big range of factors going on. But crucially, what I, what I realized looking at all this evidence is your attention didn't collapse. Your attention has been stolen from you. By some really big and powerful forces. But once we understand those forces, we can begin to take them on and get our brains back.
0: Absolutely. And it's kind of liberating to know that it's not all your fault. But this idea of personal responsibility, which Australians here have heard a lot about over COVID, and everyone supposedly mm. now having to take personal responsibility for their actions instead of the government intervening, mm. you know, there is this interesting tension you bring into the book about the fact that there's environmental or systemic factors and then there are the individual actions one can take, but that's not going to get you the whole way. And it it seems like it is reflected in so many of our social problems is that governments are reluctant to intervene on those systemic issues, especially when there's profit involved, you know, in this kind of capitalist society that we live in. And then a lot of this is pushed back onto people and they're made to feel this guilt and shame for being you know, not good enough. And as you point out, you make these interesting parallels between this issue and also obesity.
4: Yeah, you know, funny, I had an epiphany about this with um, a, a scientist based in Australia. There's a guy called Professor Roy Baumeister, who is the leading expert on willpower in the whole world. He's a brilliant scientist. He's done the absolute cutting edge research on willpower. He wrote a book called Willpower, right? So I went to interview him quite early on and I said, you know, I'm thinking of writing a book about why people can't focus and pay attention. Really interested in how your insights can help us with that. And he said to me something like the exact words are in the book. It's so interesting you say that because I found I can't really pay attention anymore. I just, I play video games a lot on my phone and I was sitting opposite him and I was like, wait, you're the leading expert on willpower in the whole <laughs> world. You, didn't you write a book called Willpower? And you're sitting there telling me you play Candy Crush all the time. It was like the moment <laughs> at the end of Invasion of the Body Snatchers where they realize everyone's been body snatched and replaced by an alien. I was like, if even you were saying this to me. So that that's the moment when I felt most pessimistic in all the research for the book. But then I realized we've been told to, like you mentioned with obesity, we've been told to think about our problems in terms of individual willpower. That's how I thought about it. When I was chastising myself for not being able to pay attention, I was like, why aren't you strong enough? What's wrong with you? But actually, so there's a concept that I think is really helpful for thinking how we get to the solutions. And it's a concept that came from the historian, American historian, Lauren Berland, who sadly died just a few months back. And the concept he came up with is called cruel optimism. So cruel optimism is where you take something with really big social causes in the way we live, like obesity, like depression, like attention problems. And you say, great news. I've got a solution for you. You can't pay attention. Just use this meditation app for five minutes a day. Do the following three small, tiny tweaks. You're going to get your attention back. And I'm in favor of meditation. I'm in favor of every individual tweak that helps anyone. And I go through lots of individual changes that people can make on a personal level that will profoundly help them. But the reason and it, the reason it's cruel optimism is, of course, it sounds optimistic. It's saying, hey, Amy, I've got a solution for you. But the reason it's cruel is the solution that's proposed is so incommensurate to the scale of the causes that it sets you up to fail, right? It might help a little bit, and that's certainly worth doing. But ultimately, the problem will not dissolve just because you spent five minutes on a meditation app. But the problem is because I've told you that's the solution, the solution, when it doesn't work, you think, there's something wrong with me because I did the thing that you're meant to do. I tried the solution. and Look, here I am. I still can't focus. Now, it's really important. The alternative to cruel optimism is not pessimism. The alternative to cruel optimism is authentic optimism. And authentic optimism is where you explain to people the genuine causes of the problem and you scale the solutions to be as big as the problem. Right, And I went to places that had done that from New Zealand to France on various aspects of the 12 factors that are undermining our focus and attention that I write about Mm -hmm. in Stolen Focus, Absolutely, we can solve this. I went to places that have begun the solution. We have solved comparable problems in the past. But we've got to be honest about how big the causes are. And then we've got to genuinely deal with those causes.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that's so true is that, well, it's almost like a kind of mass gaslighting, isn't it? If you're, Mm -hmm. you know, I think you made that great comparison for, what was it, itching powder, when you're throwing itching powder on people and saying, just meditate your way out of it.
4: Well, yeah, that's exactly what's happening at the moment. It's like someone is pouring itching powder over us all day and then leaning forward and going, hey, buddy, why don't you learn to meditate? Then you wouldn't scratch so much. And You want to go. Yeah, I will learn to meditate. That does have huge value, but Mm -hmm. you need to stop pouring itching powder on me and we can do that. We can stop them pouring itch. the, The forces that are undermining our attention, we can stop them. And I went to places that have begun to do that.
0: Yeah. I do want to start just talking about the individual experience first, because I think it'll be very relatable (laughs) for everyone, because I just found it so relatable reading about your three month holiday or trip to Provincetown, because It almost sounds like a dream, really, what you went on, but also it was quite hard to read when you were talking about your withdrawal from technology, but also from that constant reinforcement you get on social media of, oh, someone read my post and someone liked the thing or my followers went up or I got emails and they responded, you know, so people are acknowledging your presence and and sometimes potentially stoking your ego as well. And then when you're kind of cut off from all of that instant reinforcement and instant response, you're kind of left with yourself um so uh, i wondered if you could share (laughs) with us in the time that we've got what are some of the experiences that you had in provincetown completely disconnecting from your phone from your laptop having these experiences and not just the positive parts which you do bring out in the subsequent chapters but some of the more surprising things that you found difficult
4: yeah when i came back from memphis i was so horrified I thought I've got to do something drastic here. And because at that time, the story I had in my head about why my attention had gotten worse was basically A, you are personally lacking in willpower, and B, someone invented the smartphone and that screwed me, right? Those were the two stories. I later realized those stories were ridiculously oversimplified. I thought, well, okay, the solution is obvious here use your willpower to escape the smartphone. So I was in the lucky position. You mentioned one of my films got made into a movie. So I had a lot of money and I thought, right, why am I rotting my brain when I could choose an alternative? So I went to Provincetown, which is a place in Cape Cod for three months, and I left my phone and my laptop in Boston. So I had no access to the Internet for three months. You know, Provincetown is an amazing place. It's it's a little kind of gay resort town in Cape Cod. It's the kind of place where more than one person makes a living by dressing as Ursula, the villain from The Little Mermaid, and singing songs about lingers, right? Great place. Yeah. Sounds and really
0: quite joyful.
4: It is, is joyful. Although the two, yeah. people who, the two people who dress as Ursula hate each other and think the other <laughs> one is an imposter, but that's a that's different story. Right. So I went there, and you're totally right. The first week I felt this haze of decompression and relief. And I remember very vividly one day walking down the beach in the West End of Provincetown. And Provincetown is one of the most beautiful places in the world. And seeing people just staring at their phones and not looking around them. And normally I'd be like, oh, you're wasting your life. You know, you're not being present. I wanted to run up to them, grab the phone off them and say, give that to me, mine. Right. And I think, you know, I realized that for whatever it was, 15 years up to that point, throughout the day, every day, I had been experiencing the kind of thin, insistent signals we get from the web, retweets, likes, texts, and this is a very pretentious way of putting it, but Simone de Beauvoir, the great French philosopher, much better philosopher than her awful partner, Jean-Paul Sartre, um, she said that the, when she became an atheist, it was like the world had gone silent. And that was how I felt, right? I felt like the world had yeah. gone silent. No ordinary social interaction floods you with like hearts, right? That would be a very weird social interaction with someone you just met. Um, and I realised I had kind of created a vacuum that I had to then fill. And I, and I did that in all sorts of ways. But the thing that was most important to me though is You know, I was nearly 40. I thought maybe I can't pay attention because I'm getting older. My attention after that initial lull went back to being as good as it had been when I was 17. I could sit and read books for like eight, nine hours a day and my mind wouldn't, my attention wouldn't break. Um, And I sort of realised there, you know, what I would say to anyone listening, which is, you know, think about anything you've ever achieved in your life that you're proud of, whether it's starting a business, being a good parent learning to play the guitar, whatever it is, that thing that you're proud of required a huge amount of sustained focus and attention. And when focus and attention break down, your ability to achieve your goals starts to break down. Your ability to solve your problems starts to break down. You feel incompetent because when your attention breaks down, you do become less competent. And when I started to get my focus back... What was amazing was the sort of clarity that I started to get and the sense of competence like I could do things again was so great and I remember at the end of my three months in Provincetown one day I went to Long Point which is sort of at the end of Provincetown by the lighthouse and I looked back over the whole of Provincetown this place I've been for so long and I thought I'm never going to go back to the way that I was why would I go back to that this is this is so much better I got the ferry back the next day got my phone and my laptop back And within a month, I was 80% back to where I'd been before I left. I never went totally back. And later it got better because I learned to integrate a lot of what the scientists had taught me. But I only really understood that why I went back so radically. When I went to interview a guy called Dr. James Williams in Moscow. He's there because his wife works for the World Health Organization. And Dr. James Williams had been a senior strategist at Google for many years. And he was horrified by what Google was doing to people's attention. We can talk more about that. So he quit and he became, I would argue, the leading philosopher of attention in the world. And he said to me, the mistake you've made, Johan, with this trip to Provincetown, he said, I'm sure it was great. But the mistake you made is it's like thinking the solution to air pollution is for you personally to wear a gas mask, right? I'm not against wearing gas masks. If I lived in Beijing, I'd wear a gas mask. But that's not the solution to air pollution. The solution to air pollution is to deal with the source of the air pollution, right? And he said, this is a systemic problem and it requires systemic solutions. And, and that was when I began to explore them alongside the individual solutions that could, of course, help.
0: Mm. I think Dr. James Williams, he probably has some of the most profound comments mm. in the book. Because, you know, he's talking about the fact that what are these flow on effects from losing attention? And it's really actually losing your purpose and your direction in life in a way because you've lost clarity and the ability to even know what it is that you wanted to put your focus towards let alone having access to your focus and and skills of attention. So it was very illuminating to me thinking about that and also reflecting on the types of people it would also really affect. Like you were interviewing a lot of neuroscientists who were focusing on attention. That makes a lot of sense. They're academics, but they're also, I guess, deep thinkers in their jobs. Like their whole job is to mm. think very deeply and need clarity to draw on big issues to problem solve them. And even with all those people you were talking about, they were having these issues with their own attention. And it did make me wonder about, you know, clearly this would affect everyone in in their lives, but it might even really affect the identities of people who strongly associate their own self with deep thinking, or perhaps their job requires a lot of grappling with issues or problems and and that affects them more. And it just made me think about how this issue might touch people differently depending on their, their own selves, their own identities and their own passions.
4: I think that's a brilliant way of putting it. And if you think about If you think about one of the 12 factors that I write about in Stolen Focus that are harming our attention, that will be playing out for almost everyone listening, to some degree. I went to MIT to interview Professor Earl Miller, who's one of the leading neuroscientists in the world. And he said to me, look, there's one thing you've got to understand about the human brain more than anything else. You can only consciously think about one or two things at a time. That's it. This is a fundamental limitation of the human brain. The human brain has not changed significantly in 40,000 years. It's not going to change on any time scale any of us are going to see. But what's happened is we've fallen from mass delusion. The average teenager now believes they can follow six or seven forms of media at the same time. And so what happens is scientists get people into labs, teenagers and older people, and they get them to think they're doing more than one thing at a time. And what they discover is always the same. You can't do more than one thing at a time. What you do is you juggle very quickly between tasks. So you're like, okay, Amy just asked me a question. Wait, what's this message on WhatsApp? Wait, what does that say on the TV about Ukraine? Wait, what's this message on Facebook? Wait, what was Amy saying again? So you're juggling very quickly. And it turns out that juggling, that switching, comes with a really big cost. The fancy name for it is the switch cost effect. When you try and do more than one thing at a time, you will do all the things you're trying to do much less competently you'll make more mistakes, you'll remember less of what you do, you'll be much less creative. And that feels like a small thing when you hear about it. It's like a small effect. It's a really big effect. So I'll give you an example of a really small study backed by a bigger body of evidence. Hewlett-Packard, the printer company, got a scientist in to study their workers and he split them into two groups, the scientist. And he said to the first group, get on with whatever your task is and you're not going to be interrupted. And the second group was told, Get on with your task, whatever it is, but you've got to, at the same time, answer a heavy load of email and phone calls. So pretty much how most of us live. And at the end of it, this scientist, Dr. Glenn Wilson, tested the IQs of both groups. The group that had not been interrupted scored, on average, 10 IQ points higher than the group that had. To give you a sense of how big that effect is, if you and me got stoned together now, Amy, if we sat down and smoked a fat spliff together, our IQs would go down by five points in the short term, right? So this is twice the effect of getting stoned in the short term. So at least in the short term, we'd be better off, you'd be better off sitting at your desk, getting stoned and doing one thing at a time than sitting at your desk, not getting stoned and doing loads of things. Now, clearly, you would be better off neither getting stoned nor being distracted. But this is why Professor Miller said to me, we live in a perfect storm of cognitive degradation as a result of all these distractions. So what you lose when you're constantly juggling is depth, right? You lose the ability to engage deeply with any of the things you're doing.
0: And I think you mentioned in the book, you talk about deep flow after this um, in the next chapter and how it makes you feel so productive because you get into this like little rabbit hole, you know, and you Mm. go into this one thing and you kind of lose a sense of time. And I know that for me, that happens sometimes um you know when i'm doing historical research i'll get into Mm. this really deep place and you just get into i don't know some other world like a totally other world and nothing could almost pull you out you know Mm. and it's just this amazing feeling like it almost makes you feel like a superhuman
4: yeah that's so important because what what you're describing is is something that um again so this is there's something called flow states and everyone listening Mm. would have experienced a flow state even if they don't know the term a flow state is when you're doing something and you really get into it and your sense of time falls away your sense of ego falls away the way one rock climber put it is in flow you feel like you are the rock you're climbing and flow states are really important for the debate about attention because flow states are both the deepest form of attention that human beings can provide and once you get into them they're the easiest form of attention to provide when you're in a flow state it's not like memorising facts for an exam it's not like oh god what year did this king die it it just flows so obviously i wanted to figure out okay and you know different people get into flow doing different things it might be making mm. bagels doing brain surgery for me it would be writing so i wanted to figure out okay if this is a gusher of attention that exists inside all of us where do we drill to get that gusher right so i went to interview the leading expert in the world on flow states a man named professor Mihaly Cheek sent me hi you have no idea how long it took me to learn how to say that and um he was the man who coined the phrase flow states in the 60s, and he spent more than 50 years researching them. And I did the last interview he ever did because he sadly died not long afterwards. And Professor sent me hi. I like just saying it now, he discovered a huge amount about this. But I think for anyone listening, there are three things in his research that will help you if you want to maximise your chances of getting into a flow state. First of all, you have to narrow down what you're trying to do to one goal. I want to paint this canvas. I want to climb this rock. I want to make this cake. You've got to narrow down to one goal for a good while. If you're trying to do two, three, four, five, six things at a time, you'll never get into flow. Secondly, you've got to choose a goal that is meaningful to you, right? If your goal isn't meaningful to you, your attention will slip and slide off it. You won't get flow. And thirdly, and this bit feels a bit counterintuitive, it will really help if you choose a goal that is at the edge of your abilities, right? At the edge of your comfort zone. So let's say that you're a medium talent rock climber. You don't want to just climb over your garden wall. That's not going to get you into flow. It's too easy. Equally, you don't want to suddenly tomorrow climb Kilimanjaro. It's too much. And you want to climb a rock face that is slightly higher and harder than the last one you climb. Flow begins at the edge of your comfort zone. So if you do these three things, narrow down to one goal, make it a meaningful goal push to the edge of your comfort zone, but not beyond it, the edge of your abilities, you maximize your chances of activating this deep form of attention within you. But even as I say that, Amy, you can see how the environment we live in is undermining that because just just step number one, do one thing at a time, right? We're really struggling to do that,
0: (laughs) you know? Yeah. And like not have your phone interrupt you. Exactly. (laughs) And I think one of the signs that you're in that deep flow is maybe you've like left your phone behind and forgotten about it. (laughs) Doesn't happen that often, though. I'm not going to brag prematurely. (laughs) But I did want to bring in the other part of your experience, which was around mind wandering and this idea of just being with yourself and being in nature and letting your mind go and just how actually crucial it is for your own mental health, obviously, but also for your ability to focus. Because I think you talked about it really well about how you grappled with that and you felt like you were being so unproductive originally, going on these very long walks and literally just sitting with yourself and looking out into the stars or pondering life and letting whatever it was come into your mind and just how kind of critical it is to creativity as well.
4: Yeah, you know, it's funny because when I went to Provincetown, I thought, oh, you went there to get back your deep focus, right? You want to read lots of books, you want to and and the first month I was there, obviously I couldn't have a phone, but I brought my iPod, which is so funny that it seemed like such a futuristic invention when I first got it. By the time I went to Provincetown, people thought I had like a relic from Noah's Ark. <laughs> but I'd loaded a load of audiobooks onto it. So when I wasn't reading off and I was kind of listening to my iPod, I remember I had my noise-canceling headphones, and every time I would switch them on because they've got Bluetooth, they would say, searching for Johan's iPhone, searching for Johan's iPhone, and then it would just go sadly... <laughs> connection cannot be made. And I was like, oh, it felt really spooky at first. <laughs> and then about a month in, I just thought, you know, I was treating myself like a kind of foie gras goose that's being force-fed information all the time. And so I thought, you know, I'm just going to go for a walk. And I started going for these really long walks and, along the beach in Provincetown and just having nothing you know, obviously I had no phone, I had nothing to stimulate me and my mind just wandered. And at first I felt kind of guilty. I was like, oh, this is not what you came here to do. But I noticed as the days and weeks went by that the periods when I was mind wandering were the most fertile of the whole day, right? I was having these amazing, what seemed to me to be amazing insights. I started putting things together, started processing things from the past. And it was only later I went and interviewed many of the leading experts on mind-wandering. There's been a huge transformation in the science of mind-wandering, partly thanks to an amazing man I interviewed called Professor Marcus Reichel. And what they've shown is when your mind is wandering, so without any stimulus, any obvious direct stimulus, in fact, that is a really crucial form of thinking. It's when your mind wanders that you make sense of your past, that you anticipate the future which prepares you, It's also when you start to to make connections between disparate things in your life, which is where creativity comes from. And I realized in the environment we created, it's almost the worst of all worlds. We're just jammed up with switching all the time. So you think about there'll be people listening to your radio show on their phone in a supermarket. I guarantee you, look at the line in the supermarket now, no one is just standing there letting their mind wander, right? They'll all be looking at their phones. We've squeezed out the spaces for mind wandering, which makes us more brittle. It makes us less coherent as people. We don't get the space to reflect. So yeah, absolutely restoring mind wandering is a crucial element of, of what we need to do.
0: It's so true. And it's, as they say in the book, Um, as you quote these experts, it's bringing associations between new things. So, you know, as you say, creativity and new ideas don't just come out of nowhere. It's like mm-hmm. it, you need your brain to be able to have that space to find new connections between pre-existing thoughts. And it did totally. remind me yeah, of like, you know, when you're in the shower and you get all your yeah. best ideas in the shower, it's probably because you're just like letting water wash over you and
4: it's so true and we know this about scientific discovery there's a famous example in the history of maths for example there was a mathematician called Henri Poincaré who was trying to solve one of the most difficult problems in maths and he spent like a year at his desk every day and then finally decided to take a holiday and on the second day of the holiday it suddenly came to him right so we've all had that experience I mean obviously not with solving one of the most difficult problems in maths I can barely solve like five plus five but you can see the the principle which is absolutely true
0: Yeah, yeah. And the other thing I wanted to touch on, I know this sounds super obvious to everyone and they get all of these sleep hygiene facts all the time, like, you know, turn your lights off, don't have your phone near you, get this many hours of sleep. And we all go, oh, yeah, 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 I know. I know. I need to do that. But as you highlight, it sounds really simple, but there's also a lot more to it, a lot more that your brain is doing when you're asleep and also that it needs to do certain things over a set number of hours and one of the interesting things well many interesting things but one of them was about brain cleaning and the fact that your brain is quite literally cleaning itself of toxins when you're asleep so if you're not even getting enough sleep and deep sleep that leads you to dream you know you're not having that time for your brain to reset and be able to replenish itself so i just really appreciated that as well because you were bringing in some really interesting points you know and this is another thing that we really struggle against is this idea of going to sleep and doing nothing and letting our brain do something that we're not really even aware is actually happening
4: that's such a good way of putting it and the figures on this are really shocking You know, we sleep 20% less than we did a century ago. Children sleep 85 minutes less than they did a century ago. And only 15% of us wake up feeling refreshed. And I went and interviewed many of the leading sleep experts in the world. And I remember Dr. Charles Seisler at Harvard Medical School explained to me, if you stay awake for 19 hours, your attention deteriorates as much as if you had got legally drunk, Right. Even if you just go nine or 10 days with just six hours, again, you get the same level of deterioration. And it's for exactly the reason you, you explain, which is the whole time you were, you're awake, your brain is building up what's called metabolic waste. Um, it's what Professor Roxanne Prashad called to me brain cell poop, right? And when you go to sleep, you know, we think of sleep as a passive process. Sleep is incredibly active. When you go to sleep, a watery fluid rinses through your brain and it carries this brain cell poop out of your brain, down into your kidneys and your liver and eventually out of your body. If you don't sleep, your brain literally doesn't clean itself properly. It doesn't repair. You know that feeling when you feel clogged up and almost hung over when you haven't slept properly? That's, again, not a metaphor. Your brain is literally mm-hmm. clogged up with metabolic waste. So it's absolutely essential that we get eight hours sleep a night and 40% of us are getting less than seven hours a night. And Australia has quite bad statistics on this. So we, we absolutely have to restore sleep. But this is connected to many of the bigger kind of social causes that I'm sure we'll talk about. But in a way, it's interesting because I think what I realized is of the 12 causes that are damaging our attention and focus that I write about in, in Style on Focus, you know, tech is only one of them. But it's interesting, they interact. So the way I start to think about it is if you think of the tech as like a virus, right, this technology is designed to hack and invade our attention, much of what we're using. Technology doesn't have to work that way. It can be designed a different way. But a lot of the tech is designed to hack and invade our attention. But if you think of that as a virus, that would have been powerful at any point in human history. But it arrived at a moment when our collective immune system was already down. Loads of other changes were happening that were already weakening our attention. Sleep is one of them. The food we eat at the moment is profoundly damaging our focus and attention. There's a whole range of in the 12 causes that I go through. And, you know, we all know that. You think about if there's a night where you haven't slept, that's much more likely to be the next day, a day when you scroll mindlessly through Facebook and TikTok. It's probably not going to be a day when you pick up Tolstoy, right? So it's not that the sleep and the tech and the many other, the 10 other factors that I write about are separate factors. They all Mm. interact with each other to create this negative outcome.
0: I'm glad you brought up that interconnection because... Mm. The one of the ones that shocked me the most, but then not so much, when I had more time to reflect on it was about in that chapter on the collapse of sustained reading, where you were talking about this way that the collapse in the reading of books was a symptom of our atrophying attention, as you say, but in some ways it's also a cause of it. And then there's this kind of really unhealthy cycle. So you were talking about how, when we're reading on a screen, we kind of get into this flipping mode and and like skimming mode where we're just looking for key information and we're not really kind of engaging deeply with anything. And then when we move to, you know, a book or a page that's actually a hard copy printed paper, it's almost contaminating our reading experience of the book because we're then transferring those reading habits and behaviours onto The page and the book that we're reading and normally we would experience the book in a a much different way and i just found that so personally true for me what were your kind of reflections on that because i know you were engaging in so much deep reading and not reading on a screen for so long which is something we don't even really get to do anymore and as you say so many americans for example don't even read a book in a year you know what are your personal reflections? yeah well
4: so because some people will hear what you're saying and think, oh, this is a fogeyish thing, it's nostalgia. Actually, the scientific evidence on yeah. this is really clear. There's an enormous amount of research on this. People like Professor Anne Mangan at Stavanger University in Norway have done a huge amount of research. So, what you do, the way they study it is I mean, there's lots of ways of studying it, but one way is you get a group of people, you split them into two, you give them all the same information or story, and some of them get given it as a physical book and some of it or printout. And some of it get given it on a screen. And then you go back to them an hour later, a week later, a year later, and you just ask them questions about it. And what they find is you always find what's called screen inferiority. People remember much less and understand less of what they read on screens compared to what they read on the physical page. And there's a debate about why. It's not totally clear. One one reason seems to be that when you read on a page, you read linearly. You read in English from left to right. Mm -hmm. And then you read next line, next line, next line. When we read on a screen, we tend to read in a Z shape. You read the first bit and then you skim ahead and then you go back. But as you say, part of the problem is if you read too much on screens, when you then try to read on the page, you start reading that in a Z shape as well. And then reading becomes, reading a book, say, becomes less like, you know, having a warm, immersive bath and more like dashing around a supermarket in order to get what you need and to get out again. Um, which of course makes reading less pleasurable, which creates a downward spiral. So it's about, so obviously I talk about lots of ways in Stolen Focus that we can reverse that cycle and places that had built solutions based on that.
0: And you also talk about empathy as well and how people, you know, reading fiction, for example, are more empathetic and building that capacity for empathy for other human beings.
4: Yeah, when you read a novel and Professor Raymond Marr at the University of York in Toronto, where I interviewed him a lot, has done amazing research on this. When you read a novel, you're imagining what it's like to be another person. It turns out that that's like a kind of empathy gym. That, that empathy doesn't go away. You use it more the more novels you read.
0: Let's jump into the tech world, which is very dystopic when you draw it out. And there are a couple of very deep chapters around this, but you talk to a range of people, particularly Tristan. Uh, is it Tristan Harris?
4: Yeah, yeah, Checking amazing person. Notes.
0: Yeah, and so... Yeah. You know i think some people might be wondering it sounds like a bit of a conspiracy could this all be true you know what is the depth of design and manipulation that exists in technology what did you discover essentially from tristan who'd worked at google who'd worked on the design of the gmail app and who has clearly since stepped away from that and tried to talk about a more humane technology, as he said, and, and to try and challenge it from the outside. But he had been actually involved in building it with his colleagues from the inside.
4: Well, let's think about, we don't even have to go to dissidents like Tristan. Let's think about people who are mm. still at the heart of it. Sean Parker, one of the biggest initial investors in Facebook, said, we invented Facebook to maximally invade people's attention. We knew what we were doing and we did it anyway. God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains. That's what he said. But I just want to set up, if it's all right, Amy, when we talk about this. So sometimes people can hear these truths about technology, the technology we're currently using, which is not all tech, and it can feel like, oh, geez, we're, so we're living in the matrix, right? We're we're just this is enormous machinery. I want just to establish in people's minds a historical precedent in the history of Australia that will equip us to deal with this. So when when I was a kid, the standard form of petrol in Australia and Britain was leaded petrol. And a little bit before my time, it was very normal that people painted their homes with leaded paint. And it was discovered that exposure to lead really harms people's brains, and in particular, harms children's ability to focus and pay attention. So a group of ordinary mothers in Australia banded together and said, why are we allowing this? Why are we allowing for-profit companies to, to wreck our children's brains? And it's important to notice what they didn't say. They didn't say, so we're anti-petrol. So we're anti-paint. They didn't say let's ban all paint and all petrol. They said let's deal with the specific component in the paint and in the petrol that is damaging our kids' brains. So they banded together, they formed a democratic movement to ban lead. They fought and they fought. It took years. And they succeeded. Everyone will know we don't have leaded paint anymore. We don't have leaded petrol anymore. As a result, the CDC, the Centre for Disease Control, has calculated... That the average child is three to five IQ points higher than they would have been had we not banned lead, right? Now, to me, that is a crucial model. You identify a factor in the environment that's harming people's attention, you understand the science, you band together in a democratic movement, you get it out of the environment. And what, a lot of what I argue in the book is that just like we needed and obviously still desperately need, to, need a feminist movement for women to reclaim their bodies and their lives. We need an attention movement to reclaim our minds. And it requires a shift in focus. We need to stop only asking for small tweaks. I talk about dozens of things that people can do as isolated individuals to improve their and their children's attention. Obviously, the last third of the book is about children's attention. I'm passionately in favour of those individual changes. But also, we need to stop only asking for individual tweaks. We are not medieval peasants begging at the court of King Zuckerberg for a few little crumbs of attention from his table. We are the free citizens of democracies and we own our own minds and we can take them back from the forces that are stealing them. So if you think about that lead analogy, obviously I spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley, as you say, Amy, interviewing dissidents there, people who've been at the heart of the machine and had left because they were horrified. And they kept saying something to me that took me quite a long time to understand. So, for example, I interviewed Azar Raskin, who invented a key part of how the Internet works. His dad, Jeff Raskin, invented the Apple Macintosh for Steve Jobs. And Asa said to me, look, if you want to deal with the tech element of this, there's an equivalent to the lead in the lead paint. And that's the current business model for social media. So at the moment, anyone listening, don't do it now. But if you open Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, whatever it is, those apps start to make money the moment you open them. And every extra minute you scroll, they make more money. And every moment you put your phone down. That revenue stream disappears. So all of their algorithms, all of their engineering power, all of this genius in Silicon Valley is geared towards one thing: figuring out how do we get Amy to pick up her phone, and how do we get her to keep scrolling as long as we possibly can. That's their goal. It's not conspiracy theory any more than it's a conspiracy theory to say KFC want you to buy fried chicken, right? Of course they do. That's how they make money. But what was crucial, and what Asa and many other people in Silicon Valley explained to me, is we can have all the social media and have it not designed to hack and invade our attention if we change the business incentives. So they kept saying to me, the solution here is ban the current business model. Say that a business model premised upon hacking and invading people's attention, on finding out the weaknesses in people's attention in order to invade it and sell it to advertisers, that is just an inhuman model. It's like lead in lead paint and we will not allow it. But when they kept saying that to me, I kept going, I I didn't understand it. I kept saying, okay, let's imagine we do that. And the next day I opened Facebook. Would it just say sorry, everyone, we've gone fishing. They said, of course not. What would happen is they'd have to move to a different business model. And there's two different models that everyone, almost everyone listening will have an experience of. So one is subscription. We all know how that works. Netflix, HBO, whatever. You pay a certain amount, you get access. Or think about one that everyone listening has experienced. of. Think about the sewers. Before we had sewers, we have feces in the street. We've got cholera. So we all pay to build the sewers together and we all own the sewers together. You own the sewers in Melbourne. I own the sewers in London. We own the sewers together with other citizens in the places where we live. Now, it may be that, like we want to own the sewage pipes together, we want to own the information pipes together because we're getting the equivalent of cholera for our attention. But whatever the alternative model we adopt, whether it's subscription or some form of public ownership independent of government, the key thing to understand is all the incentives then change. At the moment, the incentives are how do we get Amy to scroll as long as possible, even if she doesn't like it, right? Because you're not the customer. You're the product they sell to the real customer who's the advertiser. But under subscription or public ownership, suddenly you become the person they're accountable to. Suddenly they have to go, oh, what does Amy want? Turns out Amy wants to be able to pay attention. Let's design our app, not to hack her attention, but to heal her attention. Oh, Amy, it turns out, wants to meet up with her friends offline. Because human beings feel much better when they look into each other's faces than when they look at a screen, as we all learned in the last two years when we were deprived of it. Okay. Let's design it to facilitate meeting people offline rather than preventing them meeting offline so they scroll, doom scroll at each other's photos enviously. The technology to do that exists right now. Tristan and my friends in Silicon Valley could do it tomorrow, right? That, that's easy. Mm-hmm. It's just that the incentives aren't there. And just like the lead industry was never going to go, you know what, guys? I think we've made enough money. Let's stop poisoning kids' brains. Right? That's not how it works under capitalism. It took a movement to stop them and regulate them in the same way... These social media companies aren't going to stop on their own of course they aren't but we can make them stop right we can have a movement and you know this is the one and only time i will ever in my whole life say anything positive about scott morrison is think about what happened in australia last year where the australian government said to facebook look people go to your website to read the news you get all the advertising that goes alongside the news but you're bankrupting the organizations that gather the news, like the Sydney Morning Herald, the Melbourne Age, whatever it is. So you've got to give some of your money, you've got to give some of your advertising revenue to the media, right? And Facebook shit the bed. They screamed and shouted, they cut Australia off for a while from a lot of the key functions people will remember. And then what happened? Quietly, they gave in. Because we are so much more powerful than them, right? We can stop them, and you know, Dr. James Williams, the guy I mentioned before, who rightly pointed out is such a profound person. He said to me, "The ax existed for 1.4 million years before anyone thought to put a handle on it. The entire internet has existed for less than 10,000 days. Right? We can get this stuff right, you know. And for all of the 12 factors that I write about in Stolen Focus that are harming our attention, a lot of these things are very recent changes. Right? They weren't visited on us by God." They happened because of human decisions and we can collectively make different human decisions to not allow our attention to be pillaged and raided for the profit of a small minority. And even that small minority are miserable. It's not even good for them. So like we we can absolutely sort this out, but to sort it out, we've got to understand what the 12 causes are. We've got to defend ourselves and our children as much as possible. And then we've got to go on the offence against these forces. We've got to form a movement and we've got to fight for our focus because we don't have to tolerate this being done to us and our children.
0: Absolutely. Well, I'm glad you um, got really hated there, Johan. (laughs) Um, It's true. And it's also because you say we need to bring to bear our attention on collective problems. And so it's not just affecting us as individuals, but us as a whole society, which I also found
4: so true. 100%, 100%, I end the book by thinking a lot about the Black Summer yeah. that you guys went through. Um, and I thought a lot about, you know it's not just our individual attention that's being destroyed, it's our collective attention. It's not a coincidence that we're having the biggest crisis in democracy all over the world at the same time as we're having, since the 1930s, the biggest crisis in democracy at the same time. As our attention has collapsed, right? If you can't pay attention individually, you can't pay attention collectively, you can't build solutions to big problems And I think about, you know, Australia, the place burned down and you still don't have a climate policy. And of course, Mm -hmm. there's many reasons why. I don't want to be naive about this. There's lots of things going on, the power of the fossil fuel industry being an obvious one. But part of it is that we can't pay attention. And that's a, a huge problem. And if we are losing our superpower as a species, our attention, at the moment of our greatest crisis, the climate crisis, that's going to be really dangerous. And, you know, Dr. Williams said to me, imagine you're driving a car. And someone throws a huge bucket of mud over your windshield. It doesn't matter what you've got to do when you get to your destination. The first thing you've got to do is get the mud off the windshield. You are not be able to do anything if you don't do that. And I think it's a really good metaphor for the attention crisis, because if we don't get attention right, we can't get anything right. Right. So it's not that attention is the biggest crisis in the world. Clearly, the climate crisis is bigger, but it's the one that we have to solve first, because otherwise we won't be competent to solve any of the other stuff.
0: Mm, yeah and just to finish out on dr williams because i just loved the end the conclusion Yeah. yeah you even talk about him talking about these layers of attention the first being your spotlight where you have focus on immediate actions the second being your starlight where you look at applying yourself to longer term goals, like you want to write a book. The third one being your daylight, which is a a kind of broader form of focus that shines this kind of massive light on and around you so that if you get distracted from your purpose, it brings it back to to light. And then you quote him as saying that he believes that losing your daylight is the deepest form of distraction and you may even begin decohering, which is when you stop making sense to yourself because you don't have the mental space to create a story about who you are and you become obsessed with these petty goals and dependent on simplistic signals like as we've discussed here you know, Mm. retweets and and likes and, and that kind of thing. So I wanted to, I guess, finish on that. I know it's not as uplifting, but it also did bring it home to me just how much this is a deep issue for us as human beings, as I mentioned at the start of the interview, and that it's kind of about our own sense of ourselves and our own direction and our ability to look at that guiding star of who we are and why we're here and not get distracted and lose all of that precious time we have here on Earth.
4: It's so true because we think about distraction at this kind of irritating low level. You know, I went to the fridge to get a Diet Coke and someone texted me and I forgot why I went into the kitchen and I came back. Right. And of course, that that is really happening and it's galling and it is like grit in your day. But when that happens over protracted periods of time and your attention is being distorted interrupted and the society's attention is being distorted and interrupted that leads to much bigger problems which is why it's so important that we start adopting the solutions that I saw being put into practice everywhere from France to New Zealand that are grappling with these 12 deeper causes but I'm actually very optimistic you know we can deal with this we have to deal with this I believe we can and will but we'll only be able to deal with it if we fight for it right and um, elizabeth warren the american politician said in politics you don't get what you don't fight for of course i mean and she means peacefully fight not mm. it would be absolutely the same for anyone to fight this violently we have to decide we value focus and this is really important right now because we're in a race To one side, you've got all these 12 factors that are invading our attention, many of which are poised to become more powerful. Paul Graham, one of the biggest investors in Silicon Valley, said the world will be more addictive in the next 40 years than it was in the last 40 on the current trajectory. Think about how much more addictive TikTok is than Facebook. Can now imagine the next crack-like iteration of TikTok in the metaverse. That's one side of the race. On the other side of the race, we've got to have a movement of all of us saying, no, no, we don't want this no, we, this is not a good life. We want to be able to think deeply. We want our children to be able to play outside. We want to be able to look into each other's faces. No, we don't want your metaverse. We don't want to live in your shitty degraded world. We choose focus. We choose depth. We choose attention. We choose to be able to think. We can choose that if we want to, but it has to be a choice and we have to fight for it. If we don't fight for it, They'll carry on invading and pillaging us and they're really good at it and they're going to get better and better if we don't stop them. So we've got to stop them and we can. Yep. We absolutely can.
0: And as you point out and as others do, they don't even want to live in the world that they've built.
4: <laughs> it's an amazing moment that James Williams had where he spoke at a tech conference that was full of people who've designed the world in which we live. You know, apps that literally people listening have used today. And he said to them, If there's anyone here who wants to live in the world that we're creating, please put up your hand and not one person put up their hand. This isn't a good world. We can choose a better one.
0: And as you mentioned, the last third of the book is about children, so I hope people can pick it up and get Mm. into that in some depth because you do take time to go through it in a lot of care and complexity, which we wouldn't be able to give the right amount of focus and attention oh the irony yeah so I do want to draw people's attention to that and that they should if they have kids or are thinking yeah. of having kids you know that you can learn a lot from or even Johann's if you like books.
4: children even if you like children
0: yeah or if, you have, wish if them well. you're a godparent like Johan yeah.
4: you know yeah. God Vidal said always a god parent never a god <laughs>
0: that's funny well, you are a god to many in the way that you've brought together all of this research, Johan, and traveled the world. So thank you for chatting with me. And uh, oh. I hope people can pick up the book. It's called Stolen Focus Why You Can't Pay Attention, and it's out through Bloomsbury. Thanks so much oh, again.
4: Amy, it's always a joy to talk to you. I meant to say, on my publisher's Taze Me, that anyone wants to know where to get the audiobook, the ebook, or the physical book can go to stolenfocusbook.com. You can, um, you can pretty much buy them anywhere. And also, um, I meant to say you can get it from all good bookshops, but I always want to say we well, can get it from crappy bookshops as well. We don't like we don't have like a quality <laughs> test where you can go like, "Oh, you can't stock style Stolen Focus here, you're not good enough." Yeah, what a joy. Thanks so much, Amy. Next time we do this, we will actually be face to face. Oh
0: my gosh, and please. We'll be able to see each other. Hooray! Yes, I can't wait. Thank Hooray you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Sending you Mwah. all the best. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Oh, I've just been enjoying myself too much on the program today, and I know that I'm going to, in this conversation with two of my favourite historians, Professor Joy DeMusi and Professor Frank Bongiorno. And we're talking about another of my favourite historians, the late Stuart McIntyre. Now, for those who don't know, Professor Joy DeMusi is Director of the Institute for Humanities and Social Sciences at the Australian Catholic University. And uh, she's the author of many, many books. She's a contributor to many, many more than that and uh, many journal articles as well. Uh, one Notable book that I do remember and um, really still appreciate is called The Labour of Loss, Mourning Memory and Wartime Bereavement in Australia, but of course there are so many others by Joy. And Frank Bongiorno is Professor of History at the Australian National University in Canberra. He's the author of many books and, uh, and articles, etc., as well. And uh, a notable book by Frank in recent years is The 80s, The Decade That Transformed Australia. And they have both very kindly joined me today to talk about uh, their late colleague, historian Stuart McIntyre, who has um, released a book, and uh, unfortunately he passed away at the end of last year. Uh, he was a prolific writer and historian, and he had been working on this book, *The Party: The Communist Party of Australia from Heyday to Reckoning*, which this which was the second volume uh, of a series. Um, the first volume was called *The Reds* and looked at the early period of the Communist Party here in Australia, and uh, this book picked picked up where it left off. And uh, it's really wonderful to be joined by both of them as they are both going to be here uh, in Melbourne at Trades Hall tomorrow night between 5.30pm and 7.30pm to launch this book by Stuart, which has been released through Allen and Unwin. There'll be a, a panel event, and Frank will be uh, giving a formal introduction at the launch. There, so I welcome them both now. Hi there, Joy.
3: Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me, and it's a great privilege to be on the show today to talk about Stuart and his work. Oh, thank
0: you so much for joining us, and also, uh, hi there, Frank.
3: Hi, oh, Amy, and the same,
2: ditto. Um, really delighted to to talk about Stuart's uh, latest book and uh, and all his his wonderful work over the years.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's really striking to me just how much he achieved in the time that he spent here on Earth doing so much in the discipline of history. And there was a, a great two day conference at the University of Melbourne, uh, which I. I attended on Zoom, um, which was really interesting because you heard some fascinating stories about uh, Stuart McIntyre, this wonderful historian who was based at the University of Melbourne. Um, And one of the themes that came through so much was just how generous... Stuart was with his time, with his feedback, uh, how quick he was as well in terms of providing such vital support to uh, students that he had, but also colleagues. So I wanted to start this conversation uh, really putting his life and legacy into context and to find out how you both came across Stuart, uh, both personally and professionally, and what he meant to you.
3: Who would you like to go first? Go for it, Joy. <laughs> oh, look, thank you. And um, it's an extraordinary um, thing to be able to give this reflection because um, it's hard to sum up, really, the impact Stuart had on the history profession in this country and also how he touched so powerfully, I think, um, us all in the profession. Um, on a personal note, I met Stuart... In early nineteen eighty three uh, when I was an honors student embarking on writing my honors dissertation, if I can put it that way um on some socialists in Victoria during the first world war and Stuart happened to be in Canberra researching um, his book on social justice winners and losers and through a common connection, he kindly um, you know had coffee with me and really, from then on, took a great interest in my research and my work. Um, um, I knew Stuart almost 40 years as a mentor, as a uh, teacher. We taught together as a co-examiner and co-supervisor of PhD students Um, and so, you know, I knew him in many, many, uh, many levels. Um, one of the themes, as you say, that came out of those two days was his remarkable capacity to just give so generously, reading manuscripts, commenting on drafts, being there all the time and being available for you. Um, and, you know, he was doing this to everyone. So multiply that by, I don't know, a hundred people, his day would have been very crammed. Um. So I think, I think reflecting his his generosity was extraordinary. But as you've noted, there I mean, I mean his body of work was um, uh, was vast and. Um incredibly insightful, remarkably um, original, and and he was a prodigious writer, a beautiful, eloquent writer. And we see these elements come together in his final book, The Party. Um, It is Stuart at his best. And I, I think that we can all say that what we're reading here today, talking about today, really encapsulates so many of his strengths as a historian. On a personal note, um, I guess my personal connection with Stuart were regular games to the AFL football. Um, we were on different teams, but we always managed to catch a game during the year. So um, I had very pleasant memories of um, attending football games with Stuart, whoever won or lost.
0: I've got to um, ask, whose team be,
3: who who went for who? I thought you might. <laughs> <laughs> well, Stuart, I don't think it's a secret. Um, he was a very, very, very passionate Hawthorne supporter and I'm equally so a, Carlton, a Collingwood supporter. Cool. Um So so Hawthorne and Collingwood games, you know, and then we head off to the finals as well. So he was a very sociable person. He would connect people um, and give so much of himself and his time and I think, well, on so many levels he'll be sorely missed.
2: Yeah. And Frank, what about you? Yeah, well, um, we're all flawed, aren't we? Yes, Stuart did bag for Hawthorne and Joy bags for Collingwood. Uh, <laughs> but yes, he did love his sport. Um, and and uh, not just football, actually. He was a, an avid runner too and, and could often be seen running around Royal Park, which was a, a favourite area for him. He was. Uh, a very fit man, and um, uh, I think that's you know, a part of the, the sadness, I guess, of the last the last couple of years, some of the things he loved doing he wasn't able to do. The one thing he did love doing and was able to do was to continue researching and writing history. And, of course, the party is the fruit of, I think, great um, fortitude, really, um, completed during a, a, an illness over a couple of years. Um, look, I, I met Stuart slightly more recently than Joy. Uh, it was the end of 1989, so still the 1980s, um, and it would have been as I was a third-year student at Melbourne University. He was a lecturer in a course in Australian history that I was doing. Uh, I asked him to to supervise my honours, my fourth-year thesis, and, uh, in a late history topic, and he did that superbly and uh, in all the ways that we've heard that Stuart works. You know, drafts were always handed back in very short uh, time and, and the feedback was exemplary and... Uh, he was you know, such a um, an inspiration, really, uh, in, in all sorts of ways. Um, you know, I, I hesitate to call him a role model because I think that if uh, we probably wouldn't have liked the term, and and you know, I think anyone who who sort of treated Stuart as a as a model would would tend to fall short. He, he produced books at the the rate that uh, many of us are merely able to write book reviews, really. Uh, Uh, But, look, the the full body of his work is indeed, as Joyce says, quite extraordinary. Um, He was a gifted historian uh, and, and yes, it it came with that broader service and it wasn't only to individuals like students. Um, He also played, you know, a really wider kind of civic role. Uh, One thinks here of his work in uh, the, uh, um, you know, formulation of national curriculum, advising around uh, the, the National Curriculum in History. He's uh, his worked for the, the Heritage Council of Victoria. He was on the Council's the State Library of Victoria, the, the, the National Library of Australia. Uh, he just played so many sort of civic and professional roles as well. It really is, I think, an extraordinary example of of the kind of thing that, that a, a really great historian can do in society, not just in in academia. And And, and of course, you know, the legacy... Is a very powerful one, not least in, in, in you know an extraordinary. Um, I think a broad audience for, for the work that Stuart produced. I mean, of course, one of his um, uh, projects was was a concise history of Australia that's gone through multiple editions, and which for so many people uh, here and overseas is a kind of entry point to Australian history.
0: Mm, that's a really great point that he has really shaped Australian history but also society and and I do recall some of his more recent works like The History Wars which was also created for a public consumption or a general audience. Um, he certainly did contribute in so many different ways and looking at this particular area of uh, left and communist political history it's interesting to note that his interest in that area and that field um, academic interest but also personal interest took him right back to the beginning of his own university career as a student and then later as a a postgrad and um, then as a historian um He had a a prize-winning doctoral thesis, which became his first book, uh, A Proletarian Science, in 1980, which looked at the history of Marxism within the British working class uh, between 1917 and 1933. His second book was called Little Moscow's, um, also focusing on Great Britain and Three Towns, which were strongholds of communism. So communism uh, seemed to have been something that preoccupied Stuart, for many reasons. I wonder if uh, you could both reflect on that and the reason why he decided and became engaged in a a two-volume history of the Communist Party, uh, both the Reds and now this book, The Party. Joy?
3: Well, thanks, Amy. Um, Well, as you say, if you like, his career is bookended by these incredible works on the history of communism. So as a Labor historian... Uh, he's drawn. He was drawn very early, as you say, his doctoral work, and then his immediate the work immediately after his doctoral dissertation um, was on communism, uh, and it became it, you know remained a lifelong interest of him uh, personally as well. He joined the Communist Party in the early 70s and was briefly involved with them. Um, it wasn't a long connection, but uh, an active one, particularly when he was doing his PhD and was in the UK. Um, So, I think it points to Stuart's interests, broader interests around social equality, political history, political movements, um, political ideas and ideology, what motivates people to take on um, political agendas like those who joined the Communist Party. So, it taps into sort of wider interests of Stuart that have been with him for his whole career. Um, you know, he's he's written, as Frank alluded there, um, and been involved in many, many, many different activities. So, this wasn't the only area he contributed to, obviously. Um, but it's been uh, at the core of much of what he's done. So, Left, extreme left, middle left, if you like. The Australian Labor Party has always also been of great interest to him and the book The Bold Experiment um, really focused on Curtin and Shifley as ALP leaders. Um, so the history of left more broadly is something that, you know, obviously underpins much of his scholarly and, I think, you know, personal values. Uh, he's a man of the left and he wanted to explore its historical manifestation, if you like, uh, in different ways across time and place and where the beneficiaries of that scholarship and that commitment. Mm.
2: Yeah, Frank? Yeah, look, I, I agree with what Joy says. I think Stuart was very preoccupied with um, the question of how political and social change happens and, and in particular how it's happened in Australia, although, as you point out, Amy, his early work was actually in British in British history. Um, look, I, I was just thinking as I was um, preparing some words for tomorrow at Trades Hall for the, the, the launch that, you know, the first sort of social occasion in which I, I really spent any time with Stuart, he was telling me about this project. It was really conceived at the end of the 1980s, the beginning of the 1990s. And he said that he wanted to explain um, what co- Communism had met an audience, particularly a younger audience, I think he had in mind that for for whom it was completely foreign, you know, who would ask questions like, How could, um, you know, uh, uh, very intelligent, idealistic people subject themselves to the kinds of disciplines that were involved in being a member of the Communist Party during its its heyday? You know, it, it, it kind of took over people's lives, it was central to their lives. The party exercised the kind of Surveillance over over you know everything from their personal life to to their their uh, you know their work it, you know a whole range of their activities and Stuart was really interested in in conveying a sense of what that meant. So it was almost a kind of anthropological um, ethnographic approach I think to to to, to communism. Um, but, you know, as Joe points out, he had a broader interest in political history, particularly the history of the left, although it's, you know, he also wrote eloquently on Australian liberalism. I mean, one of his very best books from the early 1990s, you know, at the same time as he was really uh, beginning this, this big project, um, was a, a history of liberalism in, in Victoria. And, and, and so, you know, he had quite a broad ecumenical interests um, in... In history, but I think particularly in political history, he, he um, continued to engage uh, as a political historian. I don't think he would have described himself necessarily as a political historian, but he he continued to to do political history, really at a time when it was becoming, I think, less less fashionable. When other types of history, social, particularly I think um, cultural history, uh, were coming into vogue in the the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties, Stuart I think remained determinedly a political historian, although always one interested in politics as a social and cultural phenomenon. He had a real interest in, in what politics meant for ordinary people, a kind of politics from below, and I think that comes through really strongly in the party. It's, it's such a great read for, um, I, I guess, just how these people lived their lives and what it meant to belong to a movement of this kind
0: Yeah, that's really, really well put uh, by you both. I'm speaking with Professor Joy Demusi and Professor Frank Bongiorno, two historians who are talking about another great historian, the late Stuart McIntyre, and we're reflecting on his life and work and his final book, which has just been released, The Party, The Communist Party of Australia, From Heyday to Reckoning. Now, Frank, you just did mention there this kind of history from below and uh, focusing on the everyday or the ordinary person and what communism and the Communist Party membership of it meant to them. And that's something which certainly shone through to me when I was reading it. And um, and I I guess I was pretty, pretty shocked to read of uh, the fact that as Stuart says, all communists were expected to make sacrifices for they lived in a hostile environment that exposed them to vilification and victimisation. The party supported them with rituals and practices that guided their personal, educational, cultural and even moral development, uh, even examples of intermarriage uh, so that, um, you know, communists were marrying communists. And I mean, it does sound like a, a very different time. But one of the things that shines through, as you say, is it's made personal and real and relatable. um and is very much illuminated by these individuals that Stuart has spoken to, gotten to know and uh, included so masterfully in this book. So I wanted to Reflect on the book and your responses to it, uh, both of you, in terms of what you perhaps picked up or admired or learned um, from this particular volume and also from Stuart's way of doing history and and your
3: reflections on that through this book. Joy? Thanks, Amy. Um, Yeah, so... I completely I just want to echo what both you and frank have emphasized there um and many many people have highlighted this you know Stuart's great capacity to capture their personal experience or the reasons why people joined the communist party and stayed in it in in the light of criticisms in the light of you know international affairs that would have, um, you know, you'd think would turn them against it. And many people left, but so many stayed. And I think Stuart's great achievement here is to uh, explore, you know, the reasons why people did stay, why they joined. And I guess the broader point for me, actually, is that it's a it's a political history that takes the extreme left seriously, Um, You know, previously we've had studies of communism and and communism in Australia and very fine studies. But I think what Stuart does is expand on those histories and position this story in the story of Australian politics, um, that this is a important story to tell, that um, it, It touched the lives of many people, um, both members of the Communist Party and those who weren't members but supporters. Um, It has a a wider significance uh, beyond its numbers. Uh, And so I think it speaks to me at that level particularly that it says to us all, this is not just a marginal group, this is not just a small group on the fringe. Actually, this is a group that really profoundly influenced people it profoundly influenced debate in Australia, um, both around international affairs and domestic politics. Uh, and I think Stuart shows that very well. So, you know, he's sort of making uh, the position he adopts, although he doesn't quite shade in that way, I think is this matters and this is a history we should all uh, read and understand because it's shaped Australian politics in many ways. So... For me, at a broader point, that's, that's the significance of the book. Many significances are in the book, but that's one. Um, and and as, as as we're saying here, you know, that capturing the cultural politics, if you like, of being a communist. And uh, what he brings out very, very strongly, and others have echoed this as well, people who were in the communist party at the time, the Communist Party demanded an enormous amount from its members um, and both you and, and Frank have highlighted some, some areas in that regard. You know, your whole life, personal and and professional, if you like, um, like, parts of your world were all caught up in being a communist and the identity of a communist. And he shows that very clearly very very beautifully, I think, with some eloquent uh, examples from individuals who, who joined and why they joined. I guess the third thing for me is that also um, while he's talking about the individuals in Australia and why it matters, he never loses sight of the wider context. And I guess, I guess as historian, what we're looking at is someone who can weave so eloquently and effortlessly and seamlessly the personal the individual, the collective and the wider historical context because communism could ne- be never be understood in isolation. It was an international movement um, and a domestic movement but also an international one. I think Stuart brings that out really well. Relationship to the Soviet Union, the relationship to China. Um, I mean, you know, issues today but in different ways. Um, but, you, you know, that wider... wider his grasp and detailed grasp of the wider political landscape he's looking at from 1945 to the early 70s is quite extraordinary. And he brings that out beautifully to sort of illustrate what is going on and how people respond to him.
0: Mm, That's so well put, Joy, and and that deep respect, as you say, for the extreme left and it as a historical subject. Um, Frank, what are your reflections?
2: Yes, I mean, I I agree with all that. Look, it strikes me as a book also of great um, intellectual discipline. And and I mean by that um, that there's a kind of cliché, an old cliché, in dealing with communism, uh, certainly in Western countries such as Australia, and you kind of say, oh, these were, you know, good idealistic people. Look at how dreadful their cause was, however. Um, And and let's kind of separate those. Let's, Let's just deal with the people. And Stuart studiously avoids that manoeuvre. He says that if we want to understand these people, we also have to understand their political commitments, not least because those political commitments were often so all-embracing. You know, as Joy said, the party demanded so much of them. We have to understand... We can only understand these people in the context of the realities of their their political commitments. And, And to me... That, that's a powerful sort of discipline thing for Stuart to do, not least because, you know, his sympathies are uh, with the left, but he can see the flaws in this organisation. You know, he, I mean, one of the things that, that comes through the book so strongly is that he he conveys a sense that the, the party is an inad- inadequate instrument for, for transforming Australia. It was, uh, you know, it was undemocratic. It, it took, you know, its, its philosophy was democratic centralism, but in effect it was very authoritarian. It's, its leading men um, were, you know, really creatures of their time. In fact, they seem narrower in, in a lot of ways than uh, <laughs> many other men of the of, of, of the period, you know. There was a lot of sexism in the organisation, for instance. Um, and, and Stuart conveys all that at the same time as respecting both the, the people and the political commitments that they made and treating them really in a kind of holistic powerful. Yeah. Mm.
0: And it was interesting, you know, when you were talking, both talking about placing communism in Australia into that broader political context, because, you know, even reading about its links in to uh, tr- unions and having their own unions and being based out of Trades Hall in some instances, Uh, Stuart says that they were the pace setters in the revival of the union movement and wielded significant influence in peak bodies such as the New South Wales Labor Council, Victorian Trades Hall Council and Queensland Trades uh, and Labor Council. And since their unions were affiliated with the Labor Party, they influenced it too, albeit indirectly because communists were barred from participating in the ALP. So I felt that that was also quite interesting to learn of, you know, the the really interest, interesting and kind of I guess fraught and perhaps complicated relationship that uh, communists and the Communist Party and its unions had with labour and the labour uh, union movement.
3: Yes, Amy. Um. Well, the the relationship with labour and the union movement is very vexed, and it's that itself is a very interesting history. And I think Stuart handles that very well. I mean, I guess I'd use the word it's a very balanced account, as mm. as Frank's rightly saying. I mean, he's not uncritical, but then he appreciates the endeavour. He appreciates what and why people are doing what they are doing at that historic moment, um, not to excuse bad behaviour or perhaps misguided understandings, point them out, but then appreciate the context in which they're being played out. And I think I think the Labor Party and um, the union movement's relationship to communism bears, bears that out. There were some missteps. There were some positive um, things we could point to. But on the whole, you know, it's a story to be told with complexity and not, um, I guess, stereotyping either side or stereotyping communists in a particular way that dismisses them.
0: Mm, it's great that... Um there, it's, this is a subject which clearly has been in safe hands for a long time and continues to be. Uh, we'll have to finish up the conversation there, but I do hope that anyone uh, who's interested can head on down to see you both, as well as others, uh, launch this wonderful book by Stuart McIntyre called The Party. That launch, as I mentioned, was is at uh, Victorian Trades Hall tomorrow night, 5.30 p.m. till 7.30 p.m. with a 6.00 p.m. start. And it's um, hosted by the Search Foundation and the Melbourne Labor History Society and will feature a panel discussion uh, with you, Joy and uh, Frank. I believe is giving the speech at the beginning. So it's going to be a great evening uh, for people to have these conversations and uh, debates about Stuart's work and the Communist Party as well, and also to purchase a book. So I want to say a big thank you to you both for being so generous and um, sharing your your absolute admiration and respect for Stuart McIntyre. And uh, it's really very much appreciated.
2: A
3: pleasure, Amy. Pleasure, Amy. Thank you very much. And um, thanks for the opportunity to be on the show. Absolutely.
0: Thank you both. I've just been chatting there with Professor Joy DeMusi, who is based at the Australian Catholic University, and Professor Frank Bongiorno, based at the ANU in Canberra. They're both historians of Australian history, and they were talking about Stuart McIntyre, a great historian also of Australian history, who passed away at the end of last year. And we were talking about his last book, which has just been released through Alan and Unwin, called The Party, The Communist Party of Australia From Heyday to Reckoning. Um, Um, And it's a beautiful and very heavy uh, hardback copy. It's really, really lovely. It's something that you should absolutely own and read. And um, as both Joy and Frank reflected, it is a real pleasure to read because Stuart is a brilliant writer um, and historian. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast.